Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. Hey everyone, happy Father's Day to the fathers. Yeah, but happy Father's Day to everybody. It's a beautiful day. It cooled down a little bit in Livermore this weekend, so that was kind of nice. Uh, but uh, we're in this Next Step series, and we've chosen this topic of generosity for today. And we chose this topic for uh, one reason, and that is it's extremely important early on as we begin to follow Christ after we receive salvation, after we are baptized in public, uh, our next step is to consecrate uh, our money and our finances to the Lord Jesus. And for Bay Area believers living in the richest country in the history of the world, we immediately have to attack these local gods that have dominated our lives for too long and are dominating the lives of our neighbors. Uh, If we don't bring down the idols in our own homes, in our own backyard, then we will be like the Old Testament Israelites who uh, weren't supposed to live like their neighbors, but they did, and they ended up uh, worshiping the very same God and not, and not at you looking any different than, uh, than, than the folks around them. Uh, one of the most powerful local gods in our part of the world is a God that Jesus named Mammon, and Mammon is money and everything that money can get you. And we give ourselves over to Jesus that allows uh, him to speak into our lives about every issue, including the issue of money, the management of what he has blessed us with. If I say to you, I have given myself over to Jesus, but then uh, I'm I'm withholding my, my money and material possessions from that conversation, then I haven't really given myself over to Jesus. And let's be clear, uh, God does not ask us to be generous, to be, that is not grammatically (laughs) correct. God does not command us to be generous because he needs our money. God has everything he needs and everything we have, he gave us. God requires that we open our hands, uh, not for his sake, but for our sake. He leads us to consecrate all of our assets to him because he knows what will happen to us if we don't. God knows what the love of money will do to a person. 
He knows how our faith is attached to material things when it should be attached to spiritual things. That's why Jesus talks so much about money and possessions. It actually shocks people when they finally read the words of Jesus and find out how much he talked about money and possessions. He talked about money more than he talked about heaven or hell or how to uh, be saved or how to be healed. Uh, He talked about money a lot, warning us over and over. He said, watch out on this topic. Be careful. Be on guard against greed. Your wealth can become a curse. Jesus was known to tell uh, these stories, and one day he told them a parable about a farmer that went out to sow seed, and the farmer sowed seed on four different types of soil. The seed represents the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ and his love for us. The soil represents different types of people. So the first soil was that hard-packed soil, and that's that person that's just been trampled upon their whole life. And so when God's love is, is cast in their direction, it just sits there. They don't trust it. They don't, they've got to, they, they're pretty hardened. And the second soil uh, has all these rocks underneath it uh, that, that prevent the, 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 the roots from going deep on that little plant. So the, the plant springs up, but without those deep roots, as soon as the sun hits, it withers. And what are those rocks underneath it? Those are those hard things just under the surface that have been left unresolved in that person's life. The third soil is plentiful and rich. It grows everything. The seed cast into this particular soil does great at first. Uh, it, it, it puts the roots down deep. It comes up. It starts to grow. But something else grows around it. Now, the seed represents the person responding to the gospel. But because of all the things growing up around it, it ends up getting choked. And, and the sun is blocked. Uh, and, and, and these choking weeds keep this young believer from, uh, from growing to the place of maturity, growing to the place of bearing fruit. And then Jesus goes on to define that the choking vines are what we worry about and uh, the seduction of wealth and the desires for things we do not have. This chokes the very life out of a person so that we, we cannot bear fruit. Our worries about money, uh, the, where wealth lies to you, you know, to, hey, you need more, hey, you don't have enough, uh, uh, and then covetousness, which seems to be a sin we don't consider that big of a deal. And what happens is what we don't have wrecks our life because we don't have that yet. But then once we get it, that doesn't satisfy it because it, we were lied to about that, and then we want something else. What's fascinating is you will find a lot of third soil people in the church, And what's tough is they don't even know it. It's the person who did receive Christ, but they didn't allow him to pull all the weeds around them. Uh, And most of us don't realize how much these weeds are choking the life out of us. Since all of our neighbors share our same condition, we see it as normal. The money we already have and the possessions that come with it, combined with all that we covet, uh, rob us of contentment every day. Day. Rob us of the life we could be having right now and limiting the fruit our lives would bear. Yet, we don't recognize it. We don't see it as a problem. We don't know that we could have a much better life if someone would pull these weeds for us. I've been a pastor for 40 years now. And in that season, I have uh, prayed with people about every imaginable sin. I'm a little hard to shock or surprise um, you know, you start with pastor, guess what I did? And I'm like, uh, okay, let's talk. 
and uh, pastor, pray for me. I've fallen into sexual immorality. Pastor, pray for me. I, I've been abusing substance. Pastor, pray for me. My anger is driving people away. Pray for me. I've, I've committed a crime that nobody knows about yet. Pray for me. Uh, I'm struggling. Pray for me. I don't believe in God anymore, and I want to. And, I, I, uh, and, 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 and so I've prayed with people about so many different things. But you know what? I've never had somebody come up and say to me, Pastor, pray for me. I have too much money. My money and my possessions are strangling me. It's, it's, uh, I've never had somebody come up and say, Pastor, pray for me. I, I'm coveting what other people have. Pastor, pray for me. I, 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 I keep hoarding more and more and more. I refuse to share because I don't feel like I have enough yet. That is the sin that goes unconfessed most in the church because we don't realize what a sin it is. We see money as the thing that will eventually free us up, not a bondage. The deceitful seduction of riches and wanting what we do not have has stunted our growth and stolen our happiness. We follow after Christ until he says things like this. If anyone wants to come with me, they must deny themselves. Whoever wants to save their life must lose it. Whoever loses their life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a person if they gain the whole world, yet lose their life. You know, one of the most oft-quoted words of Jesus are, are when he said, I stand at the door and knock. Have you heard that one? I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And this, uh, these words of Christ are most often quoted by pastors at the end of a sermon when they're inviting people to receive Christ and to open the door and let him in. And it's a great metaphor, except the problem is it's not the metaphor that Jesus intended. These words were spoken by Christ in the book of Revelation, and the door he was standing outside of and knocking was the door to a particular church. It wasn't a bunch of unbelievers that he is knocking on their door. It was a bunch of believers. The church of Laodicea, where he, in Revelation, he speaks to seven different churches. The last one is Laodicea, and when he, he speaks to this church, he says, I'm outside, I'm, I'm knocking. You, you used to be hot, I used to be right in there with you, but you've cooled down, and now you're so lukewarm. And, and then he specifically says what it was that cooled them down. It's because you say, I'm rich, I have everything I need. Therefore, Jesus says, you don't need me, at least you don't think you do. Your, your wealth has driven me out. Let me back in. Now, what's interesting to me is you look at all these seven churches and you see similarities to the American church, but no more so than the, the church of Laodicea. I think the Laodicean Fellowship is a lot like the, the, the American church, the Bay Area church, where Jesus is actually on the outside. He was once inside, but we didn't let him take charge of everything. We wanted him in our lives and we wanted him to bless us, but we didn't want him in our business. So soon our love of money left little room for Jesus and he was pushed outside. He stands outside and calls it for what it is. You have so much, you don't really need me. Your faith rests on a, a, a stockpile of assets and, 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 a, and a paycheck. Instead of the God who, who gives them to you, instead of trusting him, you have chosen to trust a lesser God that has proven itself to be unreliable in the past. Why are we like this? Why do we trust wealth instead of trusting the God who produced it? And what would, what would heal us of this sickness? 
I've actually come to believe that the devil is not the greatest enemy to our faith. Actually, when the devil attacks, we exercise our faith and it gets stronger. Wealth is faith's greatest enemy. It lulls us to sleep. It keeps us from believing in God because we have everything we need. And if you have everything you need, you don't need faith. You don't need a miracle. Americans often bemoan the fact that they don't see more miracles. But what they don't realize is it's their own money and possessions that keep them from needing God enough to receive a miracle. The people who see miracles are the people who have to have them. They fully rely on God because God is all they have. One day Jesus was approached by a wealthy young man. He, uh, the man was troubled because he said, I, I, something's missing in my life and I have really leaned in on the Ten Commands and I have, I, have, I, have, I have been very religious, but something is missing in me. And as Jesus talked to the man, he said, yeah, I, just, I, I know what's missing in you. You've done very well with the Ten Commands, but you lack one thing. Uh, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow after me. Then you will gain treasure in heaven. Luke tells us that the man walked away sad because he just couldn't do that. He was just too rich to consider that. This made Jesus very sad too. And this is when Jesus said, it's, it's so difficult for the, the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And this, my friends, is the number one reason why more Bay Area residents are not in church today asking for God's help. It's not that they don't need God. It's that they don't know they need God. Their wealth has grown up like weeds blocking the sunlight. They can't see. So it's hard for the wealthy to see how desperately they need God. Uh, they've been made spiritually poor by their material wealth. The greatest obstacle between Jesus and Americans is not sexual promiscuity or substance abuse. The greatest obstacle between Jesus and Americans is money. It's the one thing that keeps us from following after Jesus. It's the one thing for, that keeps those who are following after Jesus from fully following after Jesus and enjoying a contented life. The weeds grow up around us and choke us. How's that for a happy sermon? Well, that was the bad news, 13 minutes of bad news. The rest of the sermon is good news, and I'm gonna talk for another hour or two. So, uh, <laughs> kidding. The good news is we have the poison for those choking weeds. If the love of money is the sickness, we have the cure. The cure for our wealth sickness is found in generosity. The cure for wealth sickness is found in giving a portion of our money away to someone who needs it more than we do. Identifying that someone needs it more than we do and identifying that it's our responsibility to take care of some of these people. We discover generosity and we discover contentment. The intentional decisions we make to share with family, with friends, with people that, we, that aren't our friends yet, with people near, with people far away. The happiest people on the planet are the generous people. Am I telling the truth? Yes. Were you happier when you were selfish? Or did you become happier when you started to share? Were, were, is, is it really true what Jesus said? It's better to give than to receive. 
The Apostle Paul left his protege Timothy in Ephesus to pastor, and Ephesus was one of the wealthiest cities in the world. Uh, it was a world-class center of culture, religion, entertainment. The second largest library in the world was in Ephesus where you could go and, and read, and, and you, didn't need, you just needed to be a citizen of Ephesus to check out a scroll or a book and take it home. Uh, it was a fascinating place, and it was a mecca for restaurants. Ephesus was known as the foodie capital of the world in that time. It was a mecca for shopping. As a matter of fact, I want to show you a video. You know, we go to uh, follow the Apostle Paul through journeys every, every few years, and here's, this is the, uh, the entrance to the shopping mall that was at Ephesus in this time. This is what's left of it. It was 100 yards by 100 yards, covered, completely covered in canvas and tents, and it was the most amazing uh, seven-day-a-week flea market you've ever seen with beautiful porticles, beautiful uh, shops. It, you know what you could buy in Ephesus? Everything. There wasn't anything you couldn't get. And the citizens living there lived literally close to the best shopping in the world. And the citizens who lived there could afford to shop. Let me show you some of their homes. They've recently, archaeologists have recently uh, uncovered this neighborhood. Of course, the top is what, they've, uh, what they're, they're protecting it, but underneath, this is what they're finding. This is the lifestyles of the rich and famous. These are large apartments. Yes, that's uh, indoor heating, indoor plumbing, hot and cold running water, uh, beautiful custom mosaics, marbled walls, uh, a, a, a tunnel that led all the way to the Roman baths where you could go every day and enjoy being a wealthy Roman citizen. So the Apostle Paul writes back to, to Timothy and he, he knows that some of these wealthy citizens have, have given their hearts over to Jesus and they need to be taught how to manage wealth. And Paul knew this congregation well, so he said, here's what to do, Timothy. Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant, or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is really life. Have you ever heard anyone say, well, it doesn't get any better than this? You know, and they're, they're I don't know, they're sitting by a... a I don't know what they're doing right there, but they look at their friends and say, it doesn't get any better than this. Well, I hope it does, because that experience is fleeting. And the life that God wants you to have is one that is eternal and one that's abundant and one that doesn't uh, just uh, cause you to have contentment when you're on vacation. Uh, have you ever seen someone on vacation that spent a lot of money to be miserable in another location? Well, Paul says there's some things to not do and some things to do that will help you in this. Two behaviors not to do and two behaviors to do. If you read it slowly, you'll see this. First of all, he says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant. For some reason, wealth brings arrogance. The wealthy person starts to think they're better than the people around them. As soon as you start doing that, you build yourself a tower and it gets really lonely up there. A generous person would say, I'm not better than you. God's just blessed me, and now I'm going to bless you. I'm not arrogant. Uh, and along with that, Paul says, tell them to not set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who is the one who provides us with all things to enjoy. Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, tell the Ephesians that they're lucky to live in Ephesus and that they should enjoy it, but not to set their hope there, to set their hope on the God 
who blesses us, and, and, and not assume that just because this money feels solid that we're always gonna have it. Just because these possessions and these experiences are fun, we might go through tougher times. So he says, put your hope in the invisible God instead of the visible possessions. And while you're not doing that, here's what you are going to do. Be rich in good deeds. And one of the fallacies of uh, some that are wealthier is they've learned that it's easier to write a check than to volunteer. And their time actually becomes more valuable to them than their money. They have more money than they have time, and so they'll write a nice check and, and, and then say, well, I did my part. Well, the wealthy are supposed to write a great check, but they're also, it's really good for them to get their hands dirty and join a ministry and be part of something that's actually physically helping someone else. It's great for them to take their children to go build a little house for someone in Mexico. It's great for them to be involved in local ministries where our whole family is gathered together around someone who's got a need and we are, are actually helping them rich in good deeds. And he says, command them to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so that they can take hold of the life that's really the life. Be rich in good deeds and be generous. If you do these two things, you will have a better life. And if you want to memorize some practical scripture, if you want to raise children who can navigate Bay Area values, memorize 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, and live what Paul is saying for us to live. Because we are living in a modern day Ephesus. And it's in following wise instructions like this that we find the antidote for the contagious Bay Area disease we will call affluenza. We can stay healthy in a wealth-sick world by humbly giving away a portion of what God has given us. There was only one person in the Bible that Jesus said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. So you don't have to be afraid of Jesus when you open your hands and say, Jesus, how much do you want me to share with others? Now, I warn you, it will probably be more than you thought he was going to say, but it will still leave you enough to live on with plenty in reserve. This is how we stay healthy. The number one reason that we give money away is entirely selfish. Don't get me wrong, we do give to the poor because the poor are desperate for our help. We give to the poor to best reflect the heart of God, but that's not the number one reason we do it. The number one reason that we choose generosity is in order to make ourselves well. Hoarding is a sickness. And all of us have it. Most Americans have more than they need, but they don't believe it. That's hoarding. When you have things you don't need, but you hang on to them anyway, because you think you might need it later. Most of us don't realize how susceptible we are to this, and the remedy for this is generosity. Generosity is how we counter this. We stay healthy around wealth because our generosity fights the love of money. When we get around money and we have extra, we begin to give it away. We give it away when we don't even feel like we have extra just to show ourselves you had extra. What's cool is as we give money away to others. We are weeding our own garden of choking vines. We give generously in order to give ourselves a better life and in order to give someone else a better life. Paul wrote about this 
in, 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 to the Corinthians where he reminded them of Jesus' principle of reaping and sowing. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. He who supplies seed to the sower will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Your generosity will cause other people to praise God for their obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Do you want other people to follow your Jesus? Then be generous with them. And when they see your generosity, they'll see the difference in you and they'll be more curious about what made you that way. And Paul reminds them, just like Jesus reminded them, the amount we give away sets the amount we will receive. Paul says, the generous are made rich in every way. Now, does that mean that God will give you a lot more money because you gave away some money? Maybe, maybe not. In every way is a much bigger word than God will give you money for you giving money away. It's not an investment plan. The person who gives uh, money in order to get money is sometimes surprised when they don't get a lot of money back. Uh, And it's because God loves them. He knows that getting more money is absolutely the worst thing for that person. But God does promise to return our generosity with more generosity in many, many ways, ways that are perfectly designed for us. Think of it like this. Think of a harvest. Sometimes when you plant a certain seed, you reap that exact seed, like wheat. Uh, or these, is this wheat? I think this is, this is wheat. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's wheat. Duh. All right. Anyway, that, the, what they planted here is exactly what came up. So this would be like a person who, who sows money and then reaps money. Get it? Uh, But then sometimes you plant something and the harvest doesn't look anything like what you planted. You know, you can plant an ugly peach pit that looks like a a, a rat's brain and then it'll grow this thing. I mean, wouldn't it be drag if you planted a peach pit and you got bushels of peach pits back? I mean, that would be a pitiful harvest. It'd be the pits. It really would. Instead, this one little dried up rat's brain produced years and years and years of fruit. The harvest looked different than what was sown. So please don't reduce Christ's promises to an investment strategy. Just sow the seeds and trust God for whatever return he chooses for you. Maybe God will bless you financially. Maybe God will bless you with things that money cannot buy. Maybe you'll invest generously into your church. And then one weekend you'll come and we'll baptize 220 people in the building you helped pay for. That'd be cool. And you know what's interesting is when you invest in your church, you love your church more. The folks who love Cornerstone the most are the ones who have sacrificially invested in it because Jesus said it. Where Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Maybe your generosity will bring you greater contentment You give money away to people who need it more and that makes you feel so good and you discover how content you are with everything that you have left. It's been said that the secret to a happy life is not having what you want, but wanting what you have. 
Paul says it like this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The best life is the contented life. The most contented people are the most generous people. Maybe the fruit of your generosity will be that you finally found your purpose. You discovered that you know how to make money, but you found that to be empty. But then when you start sharing some of that with other people, your joy returns and you say, oh, maybe this is why I'm so good at making money because I can give it away and find great purpose as I help others find, them, find theirs. Maybe your generosity will, the harvest will be, you'll become a, a, a better, more loving person. Stinginess shrinks the human heart and breeds isolation. Giving opens you up and an open heart is a happier heart. Sowing generously produces an incredibly diverse and wonderful harvest. And that's what God wants for you. He wants to bless you with more. But why would he bless you with more if you are hoarding your existing wealth? Most of us think generosity is something God wants from us. In reality, it's something God wants for us. It's the key that unlocks us as human beings. And it's the greatest rebellion against the Bay Area gods. Yes, it does cost you something to live generously, but it costs you everything not to. All right, that's enough thought about generosity, except for this little test that I want you to, to start taking this week. And you start now and then kind of let it take you into the week. How would you know if you were a generous person? You can't compare yourself to others' generosity because they have more or less than you do. But here's a way to start thinking about this so that you could know if you are a more, if you're a generous person. Uh, first of all, ask yourself, how many different ways would there be for me to be generous? How could I be generous? Let's say you don't have a job right now. Well, you're not going to be able to be generous with money because you don't have money coming in. But there would be other ways for you to be generous. Where you wouldn't say, well, I'm going to wait till I have more in order to start sharing. No, you can start sharing in certain ways. And then as money begins to flow again, you can start sharing in those ways as well. How many different ways are there to be generous? Second question. How often does a truly generous person share? Is that something they do every now and again? No. A truly generous person is known for their generosity and they're constantly uh, generous with you. I have a, a friend, I have to be very careful around him. If I tell him anything that I would like to have or anything that I, uh, I, I that I, uh, he'll, he'll get it for me because that's just how he is. And at first it's kind of cool. You can say, wow, I really, really, no, no, he's my real friend. I, I, I don't want him doing that all the time. It makes me uncomfortable. But he's so generous that he's just known to be that kind of a person. How often does a generous person share? The answer is very often. Uh, and three, what percentage of my possessions would I have to share in order to be called generous? This is not what I make every week or every month. This is what I already have. What percentage of those exact things would I have to share in order to be called generous? Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, and he literally said, if you have two coats, you might not need one of those coats. And so you might want to find someone who needs it. Uh, so is there, is there, is, if I shared 5% of my possessions, would I be generous or what, what would that be? And, and you're going to have to decide this for yourself. Uh, and then the fourth one is what percentage of my regular income would I have to share in order to be called generous? So let's just, let's just say you earn $20 an hour. 
So if you share $20 with someone who needs it, what you're saying is, last week, I worked an hour that I didn't get paid for. I worked an hour so that someone could have something uh, that, that, that they really need. So one fortieth of my income last week went to someone else. Now, I don't know if that makes you generous or not, but it might make you more generous than you have been. Because that, you know, you'd say, well, $20, that's not very much. Well, to some people who are making $20 an hour, $20 is a lot. But let's say you make $100 an hour and you give away $100. Is that the same as the person who made $20 an hour and gave away 20? No, the 20 is more because they're barely making it, if that, on $20 an hour. Where at $100 an hour, you're doing okay. So you would have to actually up the ante and give away more to match the person. Jesus tells this story. Remember the woman who brought the two small coins and Jesus said she gave the most of anyone today. Why? Because of how much she had. So generosity is based on how much you have and how much you make. But even that person that can give away $20, that's awesome because at the end of the year, they will have given away over $1,000 to people in need. Well, that's a good start for someone making $20 an hour to have given away $1,000 to the poor that year. So uh, you can plug in these numbers and, and mess with them and, uh, and set your own generosity goals. Uh, but I think it's a good idea to think about it and not just let life keep going by where you wait for another day in order to become generous. All right, enough talking about generous, generosity. Now we're gonna do something generous. Later in the fall, I'll be challenging you to become more generous with your church. But today, I'm challenging you to become more generous with the poor, the local poor and the poor internationally. Our project today is Compassion International. Several years ago, we partnered with this amazing organization who is currently lifting two million children out of poverty, one child at a time. Our partnership with Compassion International is in the poorest state of Mexico, the state of Chiapas, where with God's help, two and a half years ago, we funded 11 compassion centers in 11 villages working with 11 local churches. And you sponsored 1,000 children. Now that's a lot. Put that in perspective. Cornerstone has already donated $1 million to this project through your contributions. And every month you donate $40,000 more. Now I say you, I'm giving all of you credit even though only, it's only a thousand of you in your organization that stepped up. Now today, a bunch more of us are going to step up because we're gonna sponsor several hundred more chil children in these 11 villages. And because it's Father's Day weekend, I'm gonna ask the men to lead the way. Of course, the women will participate anyway. They always do. But I'm asked the men specifically to lead the way because one of the most terrible truths about poverty is that in many cases, when the family is in desperate poverty for too long, the man leaves. This is very well known in every poor nation and even in the American inner cities. When it gets too hard, the men leave and the wife is left there with the kids. And they were already struggling, but without the income he was bringing in, now they go deeper and deeper into poverty. So with Compassion International, most of the homes of the poorest of the poor are single parent homes where women are trying to raise the kids and trying to get an income. 
Compassion comes alongside that woman and provides help for her child. And when she has multiple children, they'll even help another child in that home. And with that help for those two children, that, that single mom can get her head back up above water. She's plugged into a local church. There's a pastor now who knows about her and her family. The kids are going, learning about Jesus, and, 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 and they're, they're receiving all kinds of help. I've been on the ground with Compassion International in Guatemala, in Peru, and in Mexico. And I personally vouch for everything they do. Our money actually goes to those children and to their families. And it's an amazing thing to be able to help these people that we would have normally never met and then to develop a relationship with that child and their family using the Compassion International app where you can literally text that child. You can be in a meeting and say, hey, uh, my, my little girl in Guatemala, her name is Marita. Hey, Marita, it's your Uncle Steve. And I, I'm, I'm up here and I'm thinking about you. And I'm texting her in a boring meeting. I'm sitting there, yeah, yeah. And I'm talking to Marita. Now, she's not actually texting because she doesn't have a cell phone. But what happens is the text goes to the headquarters. The headquarters sends it to the local church where she's at. Uh, it's written down or, or, and then she, it's delivered to her and to her parents. And she now has gotten older. When she, we first started with Marita, she didn't read or write. She was just a little girl. But now she's in third grade and she sends us back personal messages in Spanish that are translated. And next thing I know, a few days later, I'm reading a message from a little girl in Guatemala that now I actually feel related to. And why is that? Because I didn't just write a check. I invested in a relationship with someone who has less. Recently, we were on a trip, and we met this little girl, Dayana, and she is an absolute treat. Um, she's got her new shirt on, and she's got already some toys that have been given to her. This is her sponsoring family. Uh, Danny and his daughter, Maggie, are there, and she's just looking at Maggie like, you're so beautiful, and, and they're just having the greatest talk. And Dayana said, uh, would you like me to uh, sing you a song? about how God is a father who loves us and who will never abandon us. Uh, and uh, so, so, so she sang a song, but then in the middle of the song, she broke down and cried, which was really hard to watch because we didn't know why she was crying. Ugh. Her mom told us that they should have picked a different song because this song was about how great the love of the father is and their father had just abandoned them. And then the mother could see we were sad. So she says, well, yeah, but this is a happy day. So she's going to be fine. And we're going to be fine because of you, because of compassion, because of this man. And she points to Danny. He's going to be her American uncle who's going to teach her that all men don't abandon you. And that's why I'm asking the fathers today to step up. Because I want us to show uh, these children and these single moms in Chiapas, Mexico, that there are American men who care about the poor in Mexico and who are gonna do something to make sure this child is lifted up out of poverty. What happens is when the children are lifted up out of poverty, they reach back for the mom and they lift her up as well. 
and the cycle is broken in their lives. And when we go on these trips, we meet so many adults who were once those children. And they say, thank you, because now I'm an engineer, now I'm a doctor, now I'm a teacher, now I'm a businessman, now I'm a successful farmer. Because you invested about a dollar a day into me during my childhood years. And that's what I'm gonna ask every man in the room to do now. I'm gonna pray for you, and then I'm gonna ask the men to lead the way to all the fences that are actually all over the property. And I'm gonna ask you to take a child and pick one, a boy or a girl, and then sponsor that child. If you've got enough spare change in your pocket for, about, for $40 a month, and you can commit to that from here on out, today's your day. And of course, anyone can do this. And uh, I talked to a young woman uh, last night, and she said, you know, Pastor, it was powerful, because she said, I make $20 an hour. And she goes, I knew you were going to appeal to us to do this. And I was thinking, I can't do this. But then you just said, well, if you just give $20 a week, uh, one hour of your income a week to the, to the poor. And she said, I realized that I, that would be $80 a month. And she said, so I'm going to be able to give $40 a month to the local poor and $40 a month to my adopted, my sponsored child. And I was overwhelmed because this girl doesn't, in my opinion, have any extra money. But in her mind, she does. And God's going to bless that girl so much. This is how Americans find contentment, is in sharing with the poor. Father, I pray right now for our congregation, and I thank you so much for the fathers in this room. And Lord, we meet their kids, and they're raising some amazing children. Lord, I thank you for my father there in Lakeland, Florida, watching online. And I hope that today he has a happy Father's Day with the satisfaction of knowing that he's, his three children and their spouses and their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, all are serving the Lord and look to him as the patriarch of our family. And Father, I thank you for uh, all that you have done through the fathers at Cornerstone. Lord, I thank you for uh, the women in this room that make us into the men that we need to be and challenge us to be who we really need to be. Lord, I thank you that you are a great forgiver and you are a great lover of souls and you are one who blesses us and then teaches us to bless others. And I pray that in this exercise today that we would just sponsor hundreds and hundreds of more children in these 11 villages that we've discovered in Chiapas, Mexico. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless them through us in Christ's name. Amen.